This is Selected Wisdom, and I'm Clint Watts. Several years ago, I was at a dinner at Princeton University when a woman sat down at the table. I immediately recognized the voice, as I had heard it hundreds of times before. Deborah Amos, NPR News. Deborah Amos, NPR News. Deborah Amos, NPR News. Deborah Amos, NPR News. It was the voice of Deb Amos, who had brought me the news from around the world for decades as an international correspondent at NPR, covering conflicts across the Middle East and geopolitics from Europe to Asia. For me, Deb was immediately the most interesting person in the room. And that room, by the way, included some of the people that invented the internet, literally the guys that invented the internet. Deb has covered stories from the Gulf War to the Syrian refugee crisis, and is currently based in Berlin, where she is focusing on the trials of Syrian intelligence officials accused of torture. I convinced Deb to join us for this interview, and she described what it was like to be one of the first female reporters in the Middle East, and taught us how to properly record our broadcast, even if that meant covering yourself with a coat to get the audio right. A truly old school trick. So Deb, uh, yesterday I listened to an interview you did with Terry Gross on Fresh Air in July, 1991, after covering the Gulf War. And so I thought it was super interesting because the interview was 30 years ago, uh, one week after I started at West Point. And I really enjoyed getting your perspective on what it was like being a woman journalist in the Middle East, but also just reminding me that that was before the internet had taken off. And so there was like interesting dimensions to that. So I guess it was hard to figure out where to start off, but how have things changed and is it for the better and take it in any direction you want for journalism, which is wildly different for women, uh, for women in journalism, journalism and the internet. How does it feel to you all these years later to still be doing your craft and with all these changing dynamics? 1991 was a watershed for women, especially in the Middle East. And you could see it in the first Gulf War, where men and women were pretty much um, in equal numbers. And it also was a turning point in Saudi Arabia because all these women could see us. And they could see the U.S. military brought tons of women to the desert. So you could see women in black, you know, niqab, eyes, only eyes showing, would put thumbs up every time they saw a female soldier driving on the streets um, of Saudi Arabia. So that was interesting. Two, I had a colleague uh, who still works at the Washington Post, and she wrote a story at that time, 1991, uh, and I tease her every time I see her, she's now worried it's going to be on her tombstone, that encapsulated that moment of change. She did a story about a quartermaster who was a woman in one of these bases. Uh, and this is the first Gulf War. Remember, there was this huge lead up, lots of people out in the desert. And the gist of her story was a quartermaster needed to change out she had too many body bags, and what she needed was Tampax because she had so many women who were deployed. And nobody was dying, but women need Tampax once a month, and she didn't have enough. And so her job was to go make those trades. And when that story appeared in the Washington Post, all of us said, a man would never have written that story. Oh, fascinating. So, Deb, when you're there, let's say in Saudi, you know, Kuwait, when you're in the Middle East during that time, um, even though you have soldiers there, like, what was it like for you as a journalist? Were you, you know, in garb? Were you trying to look like the local customs or were you also part of, I, I remember this 
you know, heading to West Point that exact year, women in the military, you know, if they were not in uniform or moving out around the base in Saudi Arabia, trying to figure out what the appropriate thing was, what was that for you as a journalist? Well, we all were making it up as we went along. In Dahran, which is uh, in the southeast of the country, that's where most of the journalists were based uh, because that's where the military, U.S. military had set up, and that's where the Saudis had set up. There were two brothers who were the official spokesmen for the Saudi government, which they'd never had before. One of them was Adel al-Jubair, who later on became the foreign minister, and his brother, um, who Niall, who also later became a diplomat. And one of my favorite stories about the two of them is the Saudis announced that their navy was going to take part in operations for the first Gulf War. And when we asked the two brothers, they said, do we have a navy? Um, so everybody was trying to make up the rules. For us, I had an abaya, long black cloak, and I had a scarf. But in Dahran, I didn't need to wear it. I didn't Riyadh, but I didn't need to in this huge operation that was happening uh, in that corner of Saudi Arabia. Uh, but for us, we still, you know, if, if you went out to the Baskin Robbins, um, you couldn't eat your ice cream inside the shop because women weren't allowed. There were all kinds of things that you would notice about what you couldn't do, but there were some things that you could. And I remember the two brothers, the Jubair brothers, said to us, this is Saudi Arabia 20 years from now. And I think back on that and think, you're right, because now Saudi women can drive, uh, the rules about covering your face uh, are much more lax than they were back then. So we were seeing Saudi Arabia 20, maybe 30 years later. But for everybody on all sides of that war, people were making up new rules because none of this had ever happened before. With all those new rules and uh, what's happened in the Middle East since, what's it feel like when you go back now or when you've traveled, you know, to the Middle East recently? Technology has changed so much about what you can do and what you can't do. For example, um, I was in Beirut just before the pandemic, and I was reporting on Idlib. And everything I did was on WhatsApp. And I could talk to everybody in Idlib. I, I couldn't phone them. Um, I couldn't see them. But I could call them on a line that was beautiful. I mean, it was crystal clear. So we could reach out, find out what was happening in Idlib. That was impossible when I first started in the Middle East. Um, you know, in 1982, when the Syrian government pretty much flattened part of a town called Hama, it took months before anybody knew what had happened there, what kind of massacre had taken place. That's impossible now because there are so many citizen journalists and there are so many ways to contact people uh, that, you know, you can't hide um, atrocities. You certainly can get away with them, which we have seen over and over again, but you can't hide them. That is one of the biggest changes and that the Middle East itself, and this is a youth culture, this is a place in the world where in some countries we are talking about 70% of the population are under 30. Uh, there's been a youth bulge in the Middle East for a long time. I would like to say that I learned everything I know about social media through 
Syrian activists, Egyptian activists, Tunisian activists, you know, they led the way. You had to know those technologies to be able to talk to those people. And that was a big change from when I first came in 1982. So let's bring it back home. I think the last time we had talked, you said you were an affirmative action yep. hire. Is that correct? And and how how does that feel today? You had talked about some of the discussions you have with the new up-and-coming journalist. So I, when people ask me, how did you start? I still say, oh, yeah, I was an affirmative action hire. And some people look at me like, what? And a young woman, Korean-American, came to my office and asked that question. She got that answer. And she looked at me and she said, but what were you? And I thought her confusion over the fact that women, there was a time when people would not hire women, meant that we won, that, you know, that had worked, that the affirmative action attempts, and this was in the 70s, had actually worked. It, it is pretty remarkable that it would not dawn on a person today that that is the case. It really, I, I guess it tells you how far we've come. With the Middle East, I wanted to take it in a, a parallel direction, which is, I think the U.S. and a lot of the world is a much more aware of how journalists can be targeted. We have it in our own country now discussion of enemies of the people, enemies of the state, that sort of thing in terms of journalism, how it's been positioned politically. But we also have uh, Jamal Khashoggi, you know, who just vanished from the face of the earth doing his reporting. It, were you ever targeted as a journalist? And, and what were the lessons that you took away from that that really shaped how you went about your craft over the you years? You know, so much of it, you just didn't really know. And I think Jamal probably didn't know how how he was tracked. And it only came to light after his death that Saudi Arabia had used an Israeli program to, to track not his phone, but someone that he spoke to in Toronto. In fact, because I, I knew Jamal quite well and talked to him in the weeks leading up to his death, I was worried enough to have my phone looked into. And it turned out that it wasn't because I talked to Jamal Khashoggi, but I did not talk to the person in Toronto whose phone was bugged, so I was fine. I think most of the time you don't know. I only found out years later when a Canadian journalist wrote a book about a woman who was an Iraqi. She'd come to Syria in the middle of the American occupation uh, of Iraq. She opened a school there. She was an unusual Iraqi, sort of a, a feminist, you might call her. And I had hired her to be my translator, and so had this Canadian academic who wrote a book about her. I knew that she'd gone to jail. I didn't know why. And I only found out reading the book that she went to jail because she was pressured into spying on me, and she would not. And in the book, it says she was pressured to spy on Deborah Amos from National Public Radio. And my office didn't know it was there, asked me to review the book, and I said, look, this is personal. I'm going to have to address this because... This is now about me. Because the other thing that I had to assume is, even though she said no, I, I had to assume that there were other people who said yes. I mean, the, the people who do security in a place like Syria don't stop with one no. And it was the most public I had ever seen in, in being targeted. And so you've been to a lot of battlefields. You were there for the Gulf War, Pakistan, you know, throughout Europe during some of the crises in the 90s. Was there a wake-up call for you where it felt different for the first time? Has that changed for you in, in terms of thinking about how you might be targeted as well? The breakup of Yugoslavia was the first time that we realized that things were different, that no one saw us as neutral, neither side. And that only 
increased in stories that came after that particular war. So you knew that there were parts of the, you know, besides the combatants that would not, never talk to you because they saw you as part of the West on one side or the other. And that's pretty much where we've been since then. Syria was tough because of ISIS and the regime. Both sides would capture you. So I, I think this notion of journalists being neutral is not, not because of us, but because how the combatants see us. And that is why things have gotten so much more dangerous. Well, it's also interesting. I don't know that people knew who the authors were or the correspondents were 30 years ago. Like there's much more attachment of the individual, you know, to some of the content, I feel like. I completely feel that is correct. I will give you an example. On the day of the Boston Marathon, there was a hack attack in the United States on particular media. And it was big names, New York Times, AP, and National Public Radio. And there was a note on Twitter that said, from the Syrian Electronic Army, that said, that was for Deborah Amon. So they knew me, they knew my reporting, and on that day, NPR was targeted as well. Interesting. It's a personalization of that counterattack in the information space. It's quite dramatic. I, I would like to know your feelings now in the social media era and how technology has changed your craft, I, I think, pretty dynamically. A decade ago, it was kind of seen as a positive. Everybody had a blog or was creating a blog or something like that. There was this whole era there. But then I, I see it when I'm on cable TV and, and doing news shows that now journalists are expected to also be social media influencers. And it's a weird dynamic sometimes, I feel, at this push-pull. How do you feel for the profession of journalism as a whole, social media and its role, and the pressures or maybe the positive of, of journalists having to be their own sort of persona? We are encouraged at my company to be out there, certainly on Facebook, on Twitter, to, you know, to have a profile. But we are admonished not to break any of the journalism conventions, not to give any opinions. And we, we are not allowed to um, go to rallies. Uh, we can, if we're covering them, but not as a participant. So that makes life very difficult to try to thread that needle. I, I see people crossing that line all the time. You know, way too much opinion attached to reporters' names. You know politically where they stand. I think that's not great. Um, you know, there used to be reporters, uh, the editor of the Washington Post at some uh, time said very proudly that he does not vote because he thinks journalists should not. I think that's extreme. I'm a citizen. And so I will vote. I try my best to keep my politics out of what I do on Twitter, but it's almost impossible. Almost impossible. Right. So that is the price that we are now paying. I think that there are more egregious breaches of, of journalistic etiquette than I do. I think cable television is a particular danger because the hosts of those programs will lure you into opinion. That's what they want. And they mold their questions that way. I have seen very clever journalists stand up to them and say, I'm not going to tell you that. I mean, precisely, I'm not going to tell you that. That is not something I am here to do. But it's the rare journalist that has the guts to say that to a cable host. Yeah, I feel it for them. Sometimes I'm on those round tables and you'll be there or others will be there and I have a very different role. I have opinions. That's kind of what I do. You know, I, I, I can do those things, but 
it is a tough position to be in. You also need them there because they're the ones that know the facts of the story. You can't carry a conversation forward without them. So for a young journalist, it, it's interesting because I watch, you know, in the space, you got Substack and Medium and, and Twitter, and there's a pressure to publish, I, I assume, a extraordinary volume of content and also to be prolific on the social media platforms to advance. How do you feel about that for somebody who's coming out now and as someone who teaches journalism students? It's too early because we're undergraduates. So it's too early to sort of get into the highfalutin talk about don't give your opinions on Twitter, but I do, <laughs> I do. So I'd open up this, this way to use Twitter as a journalistic tool. For example, if I have a new assignment this summer, I was doing vacation relief and I went to Israel. I haven't been there in 10 years. So the learning curve is pretty stiff to figure out, all right, what am I going to cover? And I would demonstrate how you can set up a Twitter feed that will help you. You just look at everybody who's covering what you're now going to go cover. You follow them on Twitter. You follow the newspapers from the country that you're reporting on on Twitter. And at least every day, you make up your own thing to read in the morning. It's a, it's a great tool. And I think that's why so many journalists are on Twitter, because we know it's a great tool. And you can do it in a heartbeat. So I teach them all to do that. And now my students are writing about Afghan refugees. So they've all set up their Twitter feeds to help them find those people that they need to report. And I can see the glint in their eyes. It's like, I found somebody. And it works for them. I think it's early to tell them about the pitfalls. I, I am just telling them for the moment about the positives. And you got to let them find some of their own I think pitfalls. that's right. And you know what? I don't know what the newsroom is going to be like when they arrive in a couple of years. It's going to change again. And so I know that when I went to journalism school, I had to learn it all again when I got into a newsroom. And so will they. Or will they ever go to a newsroom? It's been two years of the pandemic. Good point. I think I saw some journalist posting like, I'm finally back at New York Times, Washington Post, NPR, wherever they go. It's funny that you say that. It was much easier for all the international correspondents because we're never in an office. So it was like, yeah, okay, this is what we always do. But there are those who have all had the entire career inside a newsroom and really, really miss it when they don't have it. So that drives me to kind of where I wanted to move to, which is what would you tell yourself, Deb, you know, coming out all those years ago to be a journalist for the first time? What would you tell yourself having this amazing career traveling all over the world? What's one or two pieces of advice that you give yourself after all these years? Find a mentor, somebody that you can talk to when you don't understand what's happening. Two, consider every opportunity, take most of them, especially in the beginning. Don't wait. I had a professor who used to say, it's goals, not roles. Meaning you don't go through college saying, I want to be a television anchor. You go through college saying, I want to be a journalist and we'll see where that takes me. You know, I never imagined myself at National Public Radio when I graduated with a journalism degree. I didn't even know it existed, to tell you the truth. <laughs> I didn't know what I wanted to do. But, you know, I got a job in television right away because uh, they needed one of me. And that was a great break. But it wasn't great to, to work in that atmosphere of hostility because people had to hire a woman. They didn't have to like her. And they made that very abundantly clear in the beginning that they didn't like it that I was there. So ultimately, I, I moved to National Public Radio and there were so many women at NPR because it paid so badly and no one knew what it was that it made it was very comfortable to be there. I mean, that has changed over time. Um, but that, I think, is the most important piece of advice, which is don't make up 
uh, hierarchies of what you will do and what you won't do. Um, you'll do, you should be able to do almost anything if the opportunity comes along. That's excellent. So any emerging fields that you're, any emerging fields that you're particularly interested today? Like if, if Deb was coming right out onto the scene, where would you, where would you go to? What would be? Here's what I know are, are growth. And I don't know if I have the mental skills for either because it both involves a way of thinking that I'm not comfortable with. One is data journalism. Um, if you can, if you can uh, crack data journalism, you can have a job tomorrow. I mean, it's one of those, you know, about cryptocurrency. Great. We'll hire you. Those are things that journalists, young journalists now need to, to learn. I think the other field is open source. What I mean is that you um, glean um, publicly available information and put it together um, to reveal things that people don't know. For example, um, when a, well, when a group of Russian operatives went to Britain um, at, to poison a former Russian spy, the way that story was eventually reported is because a journalist was clever enough to ask the Brits for their um, surveillance cameras, which are everywhere in Britain, and narrowed it down to a time period. And sure enough, they were there. They showed up in that video. And so that was the first piece of string to unravel. Then, then you had to figure out who they are. And so it was, it's a great mystery story, but it is all unraveled on the web, ultimately, with now privately available satellite imagery, people who are silly enough to put things on Facebook that you don't think that they would ever do, uh, and you find they do. I will, it, it, it is very much like a group of U.S. soldiers who were in a base somewhere in Syria, and they were all wearing their Fitbits. And you could see them from a satellite. And the U.S. Army had to say, take off your Fitbits. That is a piece of intelligence. And so I've had a couple of, of practitioners of these dark arts come to my class and show how you do it and show what you can see from someone's simple Facebook page. A Russian who stands in front of a Microsoft building for his Facebook posting. And if you look up where that Microsoft building is in Moscow, if you turn it picture around, you will see he's standing in front of the Russian intelligence uh, office, the main one in downtown Moscow. And he was, he was uncareful enough to take his photograph there. It wasn't easy to do a reverse image. So I think that's where growth is in journalism is, is this notion of, okay, we all live on the internet and guess what? There is tons of data. Uh, so, you know, it, it is, it is our version of surveillance capitalism. It, it's an amazing new field, and there's more uh, just just the amount of information that you can put into a story or build from it. It's it's remarkable. And I, I, if anything, I would say that it made the FBI super boring. You know, like when I was a kid, it was like Heat, you know, or some '80s movie, you know, about FBI agents. And now it's like, well, you send a subpoena over to a tech company, and then you know everywhere they were, right? Like the whole idea of those movies was to track people or find people. It's like, well, it's pretty easy. Well, let me give you an example. In Afghanistan, there was a group who were working on a story about a black site that the CIA had used. And sure enough, they looked up helicopter data in those final days in Afghanistan and they saw they could track 
the CIA's helicopters and they called for a comment and the CIA said, could you please not publish that until it's over? And realized for the first time, oh my God, this stuff is public. There's no way to hide it. That's the other thing is you can try all you might, but yeah, it's pretty tough. Deb, last question. It's always my favorite closer. You have to move somewhere that isn't the U.S. Where do you go and why? Berlin. I'm already doing it. Uh, I will do it in January for six months. I'll tell you why. It is a city that is um, diverse as I've ever seen. For me, as a long-term Middle East correspondent, I have 800,000 Syrians. Syrians. Then there's the Lebanese and the Palestinians and the Jordanians. I get the culture and the food and the, you know, the, the companionship that I loved in the Middle East with German efficiency. Um, and so Berlin is now my favorite place to go. Um, and it, this is not a hypothetical. I, I mean, I could imagine <laughs> this is not a desert island discs question. I could imagine pulling up stakes and going to Berlin at some moment. And so uh, Berlin, uh, just to capture on this, you were in Berlin when the wall fell. It was in 1989, correct? much to my surprise. I happened to be in Poland uh, doing a story. I was the closest one. I could get there the fastest. Um, I got there the night it fell. Um, I was up all night because I was out with my microphone. And what we saw was this astonishing army of East Germans who had two things. One, cash, because they all knew that they could walk into any bank in West Berlin and get 200 Deutschmarks. Two, they also had bananas because they could see bananas if you could see West Berlin and West Germany's um, television output. There were some places that were West blind is what it was called back then. Um, But most people knew about bananas and they'd never seen one or tasted one for real. And so there was this crazy obsession with bananas. Is that obsession for bananas still there in Germany? No, because it's normal now. But on that day, um, it was the thing that people wanted. They wanted cash and they wanted bananas. So maybe the back in my day story of Germany is we didn't have, ban- you know, back in my day, we didn't have bananas. Ah. Can you imagine what? Wow. So you were stationed there? No, I, I've been there a couple of times, but I just what I always find interesting um, what cultures use is their their old person story of like how bad it was when they were there. And so I've like wonder if if bananas is the vehicle for East Germans for, for the hard times. We didn't have, we didn't have bananas. But of course, everybody does now, yeah. so it's not a big deal. But, I, you know, it sticks in my head as an image because, you you know, you couldn't miss it. <laughs> that was Deb Amos, international correspondent at National Public Radio. Thanks to Deb for giving us some selected wisdom from her career. Selected Wisdom is produced by Sophia James and Steve Licktie. If you like this episode and want to hear more, make sure to follow and download wherever you stream your podcast. For more details on our guest in this episode, visit our website, SelectedWisdom.com, the Selected Wisdom Substack, or follow me on Instagram and Twitter at Selected Wisdom. I'm Clint Watts. Thanks for listening.